everyone welcome to another episode of Corch's corner university i am your host paul O'Need, and as you know we don't count episodes because i would just forget what number they were i have a very distinct pleasure today to welcome dr andrew Locke to the podcast dr Locke ha- is a master of physio- physiotherapy he has consulted and worked with many of the industry's top professionals and been traveling traveling the world working with some of the strongest and most accomplished athletes and he's taken time out of his day to meet with me today and and i couldn't be more grateful so dr Locke, thank you so much super awesome to catch up paul you came so highly recommended from all the great people i work with in fact i i I hear that all the time and i just don't believe it i think it's just have really good friends who uh who lie about me in public (laughs) uh that's our industry having great friends isn't it really Honestly, it's uh, it's a pretty cool industry when you when you get to meet a lot of people and you know you know even Mike Delapava, a mutual friend of ours, I've known Mike for about five or six years now, and you know, I'll travel and hang out with him in Miami, and it's just like we met online. So so many uh, friendships forged in that manner. <laughs> it almost makes me go back to the famous NASA El Sombati statement about bodybuilding. Yep, there are no friends. There are just good drug connections. <laughs> Nasser was I a think... very, very interesting man. Very interesting. Certainly was. <laughs> but I think we should make the T-shirt on that one for bodybuilding. Okay, so first question. Do you think Nasser should have won the Olympia? Uh, I think it was possible. Uh, but that Olympia that he was close, perhaps not. I just okay. always thought he was a little bit. Always thought he was just a tad too thick in the waist. I would agree, but I've, I always have a soft spot for the mass monsters. I still do. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I always thought Paul Dillette was probably the um the one whose potential was unfulfilled. He should have got there. Fellow Canadian. Yeah, how's that? Huh? There you go. Most of my. I'm the next Paul Dillette. There you go. <laughs> we all wish we were. They need a little bit more of a tan, I think. Um, uh, yeah. So I lot. actually want to start the podcast. I, I would love to know a little bit more about your education. Because, I mean, I met you very briefly at the 2018 Swiss Symposium when I was with Stuart McGill and Brian Carroll. I'd never heard of you. And then I feel like since then, your career has just taken a massive upswing in, in terms of the opportunities you've had to speak and the impact that you've had on the industry. So I'd love to know, like, Where'd you come from, man? Mm. Well, it goes back a long way because my sporting career really started in baseball. And I probably started playing when I was about 12. And by the time I was 18, I was playing in the Australian uh, junior team, the Australian youth team, and played in the inaugural World Youth Series in in Newark, Ohio. Oh, so I had planned I had planned to stay as a pro baseball, um, but I fell in love with weight training and sort of figured I'd become the next Conan the Barbarian. Always loved professional wrestling, so when I was at when I was at university, I actually got scouted to come to the US for pro wrestling, and actually got injured on the way. That was probably the only thing that stopped me really becoming a pro wrestler. Wow, and. My life has always been in sport. So it was funny, even when I was an undergraduate as a physical therapist, um, I had patients being referred to me from the bodybuilding world because that's where people knew me from. 
Mm-hmm. So here I was, I was even in second year and people were getting referred to me. Let's say, face it, you don't really know much by the time you're in second year. Right. So that's really where it began. The first thing that would professionally, I'd say, really begins the education is upon graduation, I um, sat down with the brightest guy in the class after we all graduated and said, so what don't we know best? And he said, we learned nothing really about lower back problems, and it still continues to stay on graduation. I don't think um, any physical therapist has a clue as far as lower back disorders and treatment goes upon graduating from any university, as far as I can see. Mm-hmm. So I went to the McKenzie Postgraduate Program, McKenzie Spinal Institute. And I was very fortunate at that time because you had to take a few years to go through it, you had to jump the hurdles, but they just changed the rules on the year I entered. Okay. And so I finished the program in 12 months, which okay. is doing all the all the past, past the exam in Madison, Wisconsin, and was credentialed in McKenzie therapy. Now, this is where the spine work comes. I was actually also prior to that working in um, probably the best shoulder clinic in the country, and it was considered by me to be the best shoulder place in the world. They took me on because... I knew how to throw a baseball, and so I'd probably know how to teach Australian cricket teams how to throw, which is what I did as well. Right. So there was a lot of shoulder work I did, went into surgery a lot, and shoulder work was obviously, I fulfilled a little niche there because no one in sports medicine knew what a bench press was in Australia. So I was treating the shoulders and, of course, bench pressing, all the good things we do. But the spinal work began with McKenzie, and that was very deep. And then, of course, when I was doing a master's, I ran into the name Professor Stuart McGill. Famous guy. I'm thinking that's about 1996. Oh, wow. Um, uh, That was definitely the first papers I read of his were in in, in 96. The master's was a bit later in 2000. So I started reading everything McGill was publishing. And then, of course, with the McKenzie background, which is understanding how the passive structures of the human body work. So it's all based around understanding the movement directions of passive structures. Mm-hmm. I was able to add, add then the work of Professor Stuart McGill upon the passive structure. So we had the active skill. Right. Now, of course, here's the point where I'm starting to deal with a lot more professionals in Australia who are competing at a world championship level. And building upon that, there was a there's a, a development moment in my life which happened when I was actually working at one of the hospitals doing some research. And after a week of being at that hospital, the uh, head of the hospital took me into the office and said, stop fixing people. He said, you're wasting your time here because you're supposed to be learning. All you're doing is you're doing what you know works. And these people are here for you to practice on. So I want you to not do anything you know that works, and you now have to examine all the things you don't believe in. Now, that was the biggest career liberation you could ever imagine. It stops you doing only the things you understand, and it makes you examine and test yourself. I still do that every day. I'll always do something that I don't think may be related to another test or a movement or a position and always finding out whether there's a relationship. And that's how I've made a lot of discoveries. So it starts off with McKenzie as a passive um, understanding. 
went to McGill to understand the active movement postures and positions of biomechanics, how the human body holds itself together, and then launched itself with um, that wonderful thought of always test everything you don't believe in. That's and so that's profound. That that one question. So I've had a couple people on in the last couple of weeks, and and we every single person I've spoken to touches on the topic of um, exposing yourselves to different viewpoints and viewpoints mm. that you don't necessarily agree with being incredibly valuable to either open your eyes to new opportunities or validate your, your currently held beliefs. But what mm. we're, what you're saying now is, I mean, even the first question you asked yourself upon graduation is what don't I know yet? Or mm. where is the gap in my knowledge? And I'm going to attack that. And then and further, and then further, you built on this passive, active, eye-opening model to really where I see from the outside looking in, being being only exposed to what you've put out online and the education products and and the free free information that you've put out is you've carved out this niche of someone who is, and this is a big topic I wanted to touch on today is attaching these passive active models to very high output athletes. Mm. And that to me is like the biggest gap that I see as a coach when trying to help my clients towards success is they have these people on one side of them saying, you need to stretch more. You have these people on the other side that say you need to stabilize more. And then I'm over here saying, you need to stabilize yourself under load, go through active ranges of motion and apply a massive amount of force. So how do we put all of these three together? And so the opportunity to speak with you in that regard is like, I'm here to learn. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've entered a really good realm there. Um, and that's the realm of absolute weight, absolute limits. The, um, the demonstration of lifting things under absolute limits. Now, if we look at absolute squats, right? Mm -hmm. You can look at Brian Carroll with um, 1306 pound. You're going to look at Blaine Sumner, 515 kilograms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look at Vlad Elazov. Watch the video of all those guys. And there's probably a video on YouTube that says top 10 squats of all time. I want you to watch their knee positions. There is zero valgus. There is zero knee collapse on every single top lift at absolute limit. Mm -hmm. So when a person says, have a look at Jen Thompson and her knees valgusing, what does she lift though? Mom, was it maybe, maybe 250 kilograms? That's less yeah. than half of human limit. So what you're seeing there is the ability to have a technical breakdown. But the technical breakdown is a load that the body can handle. It can't handle technical breakdown at absolute limits. So when you see a person who's lighter lifting, say, four times body weight. Right. And you see a technical breakdown, that's just simply the body's got the ability and capacity to handle the breakdown. That doesn't mean it's right, because what's right is what you're going to see displayed at absolute limits, where you have zero error factor. As the load increases, in an absolute sense, the error factor decreases. 
And that's a fact of life. It doesn't matter what it is. It's going to be a deadlift. It's going to be a squat. It'll be a bench. It'll be anything in life. Parkour, for example, it's the same thing. So if someone tries to say something stupid like it's allowable to valgus or acceptable and indicate that it's not an abnormality, they're wrong. That is the mechanism of ACL injury. That's the mechanism of knee injury. Right. But you can get away with it. Mm-hmm doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. So there's another famous saying, a friend of mine called um, Dan Duchesne said, Dan was a bit of a famous fellow and I got to meet Dan. And he made a wise statement that was, never consider yourself to be the exception until you can prove that you are the exception. And I would say that, yeah, I'd say that really comes down to coaching. Don't consider that you are the person who is the exception. Stick to the rules until you can prove that you don't stick to the rules. I've always so I've always lot. thought about those sort of technical breakdowns in terms of, you know, whether it be knee valgus or or whether it be, you know, even elbow position on the bench press. Hmm. It's about transfer of force. So transfer of force is going to take place in the most efficient manner through straight lines. And if you're creating all these oblique angles throughout the system, these are just power leaks. And these power leaks are not transferring through the musculature that supports the skeleton. And people argue, oh, knee valgus, it's the adductor trying to extend the hip. It's like, yeah, the adductor is trying to extend the hip, (laughs) but it's trying to extend the hip because you've allowed the glutes to lose mechanical advantage. So if the glutes lose mechanical advantage, the adductor has to take over, extend the hip. The adductor is also going to posteriorly tilt the pelvis, you know? So it's like, what do we want here? And I love that you mentioned absolutes because yeah, at an absolute load, when you're trying to shoot a target that is five miles away, mm. you cannot be off. <laughs> Not a but if I'm shooting a target 10 feet away, well, that tiny little hole becomes much larger. And to me, that is looking at this, this individual who might have a technical breakdown is saying, all right, I'm going to allow that. You're essentially creating a glass ceiling for that athlete that they're only going to get as strong as their structure allows them to tolerate that poor position. And there's a part there too, is if you have a look at say the good athletes who do have technical breakdown, it's only at the top weight. Their warm-up sets yeah. are going to be quite excellent. Their sub-maximals are beautiful. Yeah. There's technical breakdown when they don't have the strength to hold position. Yeah. That's such a beautiful concept and you got it right there. Yeah. The adductors are extending the hip. They have a mechanical advantage. Well, imagine if you actually, um, added the glutes to the hip extension <laughs> you'd probably be stronger there you go um let's talk i mean we're on the subject of you know rehab position mobility strength um mm-hmm. the concept of injury prevention so this was mm-hmm. you know i've been in the industry i know my youthful features and full head of hair would dictate that i'm quite young but i've actually been in this for a while um works well i i've seen the massive amounts of foam rolling. I've seen the massive amounts of stretching. I've seen the massive amounts of dynamic mobility. I've seen, and now trending towards walking the gym and lift weights. The concept of injury prevention to me centers more so on how do we structure the training session to create a resilience around the system itself to the movement demands that we're trying to place on it. I've also heard, you know, Jordan Shallow use the term injury risk mitigation because you can't 
prevent injuries at limits, right? I'm wondering well, what your rather, take on that is. Rather than injury risk mitigation, how about say, how do we reduce injury? <laughs> well, do you know Jordan? He likes to use big words, right? <laughs> no, he does. And I, I got to sometimes help translate that to people and say, we can actually say this a little bit more simply. But he's saying the same thing. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, I'm wondering well, what your yeah. your take on that that whole concept is. Uh, the whole concept comes around the fact that um, when you first start lifting weights as a teenager or in your 20s, uh, you're pretty bulletproof. Most people are. So you go balls to the wall. You do a lot of dumb shit because you can get away with it. Now, that's not the brightest thing to do, but it, you know no better. It, it, how do you put a wise head on young shoulders and say, you know what, here's some axial loading you're doing. Well, perhaps we need to choose some times when you're not going to load the skeleton the same way. And yet you feel pretty fine because you're so damn resilient. You've got great capacity. Your collagen's really extensive. You can do so many things. It's hard to put the concepts of longevity and that approach upon people who don't feel it because they're feeling like they can get up and do it again tomorrow. Mm. The how do we decrease injury? <clears throat> uh, well, that certainly comes from having to engage with a coach who's got a long career with athletes that have a long career. That's a big part of it. I mean, anyone can get an athlete at the top who's just genetically a freak and within no short time at all can do some extraordinary things. But uh, what's the career like of that athlete and how many of them last very long? Look at the good ones. Look at the ones, the greats in our history and the ones who are currently, you look at them who are 10 years at the top. Mm -hmm. And the injuries are not from non-traumatic experiences. You know, they're actually planning and programming beautifully. So it is a matter of programming more than anything else is to build up the resilience of the body to plan for a peaking program, to plan for competition, to understand you probably shouldn't be doing four comps a year. Right. You know, the idea of saying peak once or twice, that should be enough and you'll progress beautifully, work your off season on your weaknesses don't just work your strengths. Ed Cohen's a great one for that one. As he said, in his off-season, he didn't do the major lifts. Mm -hmm. He addressed the things that were going to enable him to move back into the program with the major lifts. There's a lot of wisdom to that. So that's where I tend to go. If I look at the someone like even Brian Carroll now, I mean, there's a guy who's had some huge injuries, mm -hmm. but he has pain-free days now. And you look at that and you say, wow, you squatted 1,306. And you did a lot of work getting there as well previously, and you have pain-free days, and you're mm -hmm. in your 40s. Very impressive. Now, that comes from his experience of having had injury and learning how to load and deload. Brian Carroll's great. And I was just thinking another one, obviously, Ed Cohen only stopped because he had rheumatoid arthritis. Right. He yep. was still still going. So there's an athlete that has a, a huge distance. Yeah. The wisdom yeah. of that... And, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah, I was thinking Bill Kazmaier is an example of the opposite. There's a guy who tears himself apart, and now Bill, one of the greats of all time, but he's always been a balls to the wall guy. I mean, that could call into question like personality types and lifting. But Brian, mm. 
Brian was my first, uh, my first influence who preached less is more. So I, mm. I started off more so in a conjugate style program, my own little spin, my background is sports performance. So I was a, I was a collegiate strength coach for about five years in the U S uh, moved here to Canada and then got more into powerlifting as I went on more so concurrent periodization, then got into a lot more of like Shaco Russian style programming with very low variation, very high volumes. Uh, then I met Brian and was really exposed to like, do what's required to progress the lifts, no more, no less deload frequently. And consequently during my time working with Brian as a member of his team and you know, that those are when I hit my, my biggest totals. And I think back my personality type as a lifter is much more like the Bill Kazmaier. I will run my head through a wall, but I'm also bearing the brunt of that with now having two knee surgeries, multiple tears, you know, blown, basically held together by duct tape and hopes and dreams <laughs> at this point. And so I'm trying to preach to my athletes that we need to back off periodically. We need to One unload ourselves. Spot on. Matt Wenning is fantastic for that. So I do a fair bit of good work with Matt. And let's look at that career. There's a good 20 years of being at the top. And there's a guy without injury and he moves brilliantly. Yeah. And I was with him the other day and, you know, his weight training sessions last less than one hour. And that's him going from, okay, I'm, I'm warming up now to that's a 500-pound bench you just did. Mm -hmm. He doesn't stop that's moving. under 50 minutes. No, he doesn't stop moving. Yeah, very high GPP. Very incredibly smart guy with who understands how to create a resilient athlete. And um, that was another eye-opener. There's a guy who's lifted. He can still bench 500 on within an hour of walking into a gym. It seems to me like even as somebody who has a wide breadth of expertise, an incredible amount of experience, you still seem to be seeking knowledge and education from others. Like you never Definitely. turn that side of yourself off. Oh, you can't because you and I still have questions. We go to bed within our head <laughs> yes, and we're still looking at them and we wake up. Sometimes we wake up during the night, we grab a pen and paper and we write something down and go, I've got to remember that one for the morning. I mean, yeah. that happens every single day of our lives. Uh, you, I'm sure you do the same thing. We will go to the airport. We will go to shopping. We will go to the mall. All I'm going to do is I'm going to be watching people move. See that leg there? See that ankle there? What do you think that one is? I'll talk to my wife, Julie, about that. And it's unconscious. You're consciously looking. You're actually unconsciously looking at people moving. As I describe it, we're like apex predators. We're looking for the weakest thing in the, in the in the field. And that's what we're watching. It's us. We're going, okay, that's the weak one there. Okay, that's the one you got to hone in on. Yeah. That's how we work. That's how we watch human movement. And that's why it's so important for us. We're never having a day where we're not watching something. Ed Cohen's like that. Man, how many years has he been in the field? I did a workshop with Ed. Wow. Ed is like a just like that apex predator he's a hawk he's watching and he'll pick out that subtle movement that you didn't know you were doing mm -hmm. it's beautiful to observe so yes it always develops in us because we're always asking questions why did that person move like that what happened there what's the understanding of the science behind what might have happened there never stops 
Do you think you'll ever get to a point where you are set in your ways and you know exactly the recipe that will make the pro- the the strongest soup? Pretty much there's a point of saying we know the parameters that are involved in making the strongest soup. Mm-hmm. But I can, I can get an athlete like I had come in and see me and this guy runs a gym and he wants to be a competitive power lifter. In fact, he's not negotiating on the fact he wants to be a competitive powerlifter. And he has the worst physical attributes to be a powerlifter. He has got a Celtic background. Mm-hmm. His hips have zero internal rotation. Now, I can't get him to squat and allow his knees to track over his ankles. He actually has to push his knees out past his fifth toe line. And he actually has to wait there on his fifth toe and heel, and he can barely get his big toe down. It is the ugliest squat you'll ever see a human being do because he's got bony structure in his hips that do not allow him to get hip crease to knee. Mm -hmm. Unless I push his knees out and he suddenly clears the bony structure. Now, it's the ugliest squat you will see, and I gave it to him. But... It's the only squat he will get that in a powerlifting competition will pass the judge's um, white light. Right. That means it's the best he can do with the structure that he has, and it is not going to be within the normal parameters of what our acceptable biomechanics would say we should be achieving with a person doing that. In other words, I think he should take up chess. It's a better sport for him. But his passion is, I must power lift. Now, will that hip last 20, 30 years doing that? Well, I would certainly doubt it. But he's not negotiating. That's what his passion is. That's what he will do. So I've got to make sure he can do it. One thing that I've been, a lot of the questions that I've been asking myself lately are surrounding context. And I've brought out the, the context of function. So people will say, oh, that's functional. Oh, that's this. Oh, that's that. And my thought process is like, well, function is going to be dependent on the context in which we're applying function. So for this gentleman, having a quote unquote poor biomechanical execution is functional for him because it allows Mm. him to perform the demands of the task. Now, if he was gen pop, just wants to exercise to improve his fitness, look better you probably wouldn't squat him. 100% would not squat him. This is not going to give him longevity. This will not, as Jordan would say, produce injury mitigation. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to design a resistance training program that does not include squatting for him. Absolutely. If he's gen pop and he just wants to feel better, look better, grow some muscle mass, well, squat's not the exercise for you, son. Yeah, we'll throw you on some split squats, a leg press, let him have some fun. And I think that that plays very well into the like the concept of of context when you're dealing with, you know, in your case, I'm sure the majority of the the athletes that you're going to consult with are injured. Am I would I be? No one has ever come to me for a consultation and walked in and said, "There's nothing wrong with me." (laughs) <laughs> I see a population of people who are injured. That absolutely skews the population that I see. But that's an important thing. 
when people only read research and don't work with human beings, mm-hmm. then you're going to find that they don't understand people. So the thing about clinical work is it allows you to understand people, problems, movement, and then you can see where the research either applies or fails. And that's hugely important. Yeah. When someone comes in to see me, they always have an injury. So if you come in with a shoulder impingement, I will be seeing a shoulder impingement that is symptomatic. You want to read things um, that tell you shoulder impingement exists and it's not symptomatic? Yeah, of course it does. But those people don't come and see me. So if I've got a symptomatic one, I have to apply something to reduce the symptoms. Right. That's where people who only read research have got no idea that when you walk out there, you don't see people who don't have problems. You see people with problems. I find more more so in the industry of high-level strength sports is where you're going to see where the research fails the most often. I mean, awesome. the, re- the research is going to give us a phenomenal framework to understand the human body, to understand movements, understand force vectors. But then when that force vector gets notched up to 100% and, you know, even beyond, that's when you're going to see, oh, is this really applicable anymore? <laughs> you got one for you, Paul. Do you know whether the squat has ever been standardized for research oh, or a never. deadlift? Never. Never. <laughs> so here are people publishing papers on an unstandardized lift. The parameters have not been described for research, which is consistent between all papers. It's ridiculous when people say the squat and the hip thrust, for example. Here's an example of you know what the outcome is. You go, well, how was it cued? Well, it's funny. <laughs> so it, much to it. It's funny you mentioned the squat and the hip thrust because I actually just did a I did a talk on that for for my website, Coaches Corner University, and one of the one of the points that I made and that I've never heard made before in terms of the applicability of a hip thrust to athletic populations is in what context does the hip ever extend independent of knee extension? Hmm. What context does it see? I, I use it in rehab precisely for that way is I can put a person in the biomechanical most efficient position for the hip. Right. Or the, if I'm if I'm doing glute max work, mm-hmm. well, let me put the hip at zero degrees. Let me bend the knee ninety degrees to take out the hamstrings efficiency of hip extension, mm-hmm. and then I'll extend then I'll extend the hip. I've just mechanically put the glute max in the most effective position to get a contraction. Right. When do you do that? And re- when when do you actually do that in a sporting movement? It's a rehab movement. Yeah, Gra- I think grappling. Mixed martial arts would probably be the only context in which I would see like an actual hip lift in a guaranteed. Yeah, Um, that's a great one. So you know that was a big argument for me because you know the the glute gurus, so to speak. Oh yeah, this is the best lift to improve hip extension, and I was like, yep, in isolation for sure. But if we're talking about you know dynamic transferability, probably not going to have very much. And then you know in that same vein when we're looking at research and we're looking at standardization, the first uh, experience that I had with that and actually thought critically about it was during my master's degree. I did an independent study looking at uh, externally stabilized movements versus internally stabilized movements in terms of caloric expenditure. 
And there was no standardization of how these movements were compared. So take a leg press versus a squat and try to compare the caloric expenditure of the two. And, you know, we had some of our participants just like barely squatting deep, like we'll call them shallow knee bends, not squats. And I'm like, how are we supposed to make this applicable to a population who will probably be squatting to depth? We already know that the internally stabilized movement is going to be more taxing. It's, but we just want to prove it. And I was like, how is any of this going to apply when I standardize a movement? (laughs) And then further to that, Dr. Locke, if you took up, talk about standardizing, the only standardization of the squat is the, is the relationship between top surface of the knee and hip crease. It has nothing to do with stance width. It has nothing to do with uh, foot angle. It has nothing to do with footwear. It has nothing to do with bar placement, all of which oh. will change the force vector that goes through the hip. So immediately there's so many invalidity applications there to an external population. And that happened when someone was, uh, wanting to discuss the idea of a sumo deadlift versus a conventional as far as glutes go. And they were saying, oh, it's less effective to do a sumo. Uh, that might have been the conclusion of the study, but have a look at the results internally. And there was such a variation upon the internal results that I'm sure there was somebody in there who actually had more glute than quad. You could see that there was a massive um, differentiation from the mean across all the people they did. All they came up with was, oh, here's your overall conclusion. But read the whole study. Right. Because in research, we're presenting averages. We're saying this most of the time for most people, this is what you're going to see. There's people that exist on the right side of the bell curve. There's people that exist on the left side of the bell curve. And watch us change everything with a simple verbal cue. (laughs) Now we're just (laughs) opening up a can of worms, right? That's right. So, yeah, when people only sit and understand research, but they don't actually put a bar on their back and they're not spending a lot of time with people who put bars on their backs, they're not going to understand, but they're still going to get a voice on social media. Yeah, that's honestly, that's been kind of, uh, that's been a hot button topic for me because in my eyes, it's like, if I want to build a lot of muscle, I'm probably going to go see someone who's built a lot of muscle or helped other people build a lot of muscle. But now we have a lot of these individuals who are either, you know, fresh into the game or haven't helped many people speaking from a position of authority. And while I firmly believe that you should have a, like you have a platform, if that's the information that you want to put out, but you have to have some proof to the pudding, right? There has to be oh, some skin in the game. I want to see you point to the scoreboard and show me you've actually got a touchdown because there are so many people with 20 years experience who have never got out of their chair and off a keyboard who make careers out of talking absolute shit. I think the key word in that statement was absolute because in this Mm. game, there are very little absolutes there. Like Mm. to say that one thing is right. And one thing is wrong to me is, is doing a disservice to the people that you work with and the industry as a whole, because if you don't understand context, and you don't understand that depending on the global situation of what's going on, something may be good for someone, but it may be an injury waiting to happen for somebody else. It may be. And there's a, a big thing like like yourself, we've enjoyed the the gifts that Professor Stuart McGill has given us. And you'll see people out there who say, 
Oh, he studied pig spines. Yeah, but he published 350 plus papers and about less than 10% of them have anything to do with the mechanics of how a disc behaves that he used a pig model from. Right. And um, an interesting one that comes in there is the hip thrust, for example. People look at it and go, yeah, but it's not actually actually axially loaded. Right. And you'll, and you'll know from a biomechanical point of view, you know it's freaking axially loaded because all the internal musculature is at that point producing spectacular axial compression to hold you in that position when you do a freaking hip thrust. It's not about the external weight you're stuck on your shoulders. It's a fact your psoas and your erectors and your QLs and your lats and everything's actually connecting to your spine. Mm-hmm. And to stabilize you to perform a hip thrust, guess what? you got huge axial load. Ah, oh, have a look at a pig's head. Well, when a pig's head actually is held up and you look at the lordosis of a pig's neck, it's got axial load upon the pig's spine. Of course, it's a freaking brilliant idea to be able to examine that because it's very similar to a human body. It's hilarious when people don't understand shit and they go and talk about it. McGill will use those spines because they're actually entirely appropriate because of the axial loading. Mm-hmm. But people don't understand internal loads. It's... uh. It's, it's very interesting that someone can develop such a, you know, library of evidence towards a certain viewpoint and then have each thing like nitpicked about it rather than looking at it and saying, wow, there's a ton of stuff we can learn from this. How can we apply it in an artful manner to whatever we're trying to do? And, you know, I think f- for yourself, you're, you're in that, in that space where, You've learned from these people. You've learned from all other all other walks, and you've said, "How can I apply this in my own way?" You've even developed your own, you know, exercise pro, like the Lock Five. Um, you've also got uh, you put out a lot of information on shoulder mechanics. I know because I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that the first time Brian reached out to you was about his shoulder, right? That was it. Yes, Brian and myself caught up at that Swiss 2018. Yeah, and. I was presenting on shoulders at that point. And that was, I mean, I just actually did this uh, very improved version of it with Matt Winning about two months ago in Ohio. We just shot a video and workshop on it. So that should be coming out as a complete workshop and uh, video on the shoulder solutions plus bench press technique work that comes from it. Yeah, that was, um, shoulder was my love because, of course, when it comes down to, um, the understanding of, say, we'll come to spine or shoulder, it doesn't really matter. But the greater the load, the more stability you require. And the right. more stability that will tend to be produced. So if you're looking at a spine that's, un- this is where the failure of the transverse abdominus theory was, was um, that came out of the University of Queensland back in the 90s. They were following clues, they just got it wrong. Mm-hmm. wasn't to say that the clues they were following were wrong. The clues they were following were right. It was just that their choice of exercise was wrong and their theory was wrong. And they misquoted some studies as well to help themselves on the way. Yeah. But um, one of the things there was turn off all your muscles as much as you can, get in a quadruped, in other words, kneeling position. I better remember to be Andrew, not Jordan, right? <laughs> on your hands and your knees. And um, pull your belly button in and relax everything to get your transverse abdominus timing better. Well, that doesn't produce stability. Right. That actually decreases the biomechanical load upon the axial spine. Mm-hmm. Whereas the McGill approach was, uh, you know, if you turn on all the muscle that you can, you actually have a more stable spine. And then you go back to the 
uh, Punjabi model of the neutral zone theory, which is exactly what we're talking about. And uh, the idea is the higher you load it, the more stability you have upon a segment that is unstable. Hey, well done. Professor McGill and uh, Punjabi totally agree. So it's not as if he's the only person who said it. He's demonstrating the evidence of the neutral zone theory. So when we're talking about this within the context of, you know, we'll, we'll talk about unstable structure, potentially injured structure for the sake of the conversation. And you have this individual who's seeking to scale themselves back to that absolute level of strength. The question that I always get is, well, I can't just do the big three forever. Or I can't just do the lock five forever. And, and that's not in and of itself going to get me back to a thousand pounds or 800 pounds or whatever it might be. So how do you go about scaling the stimulus with the capacity? There is always the underlying foundations. And we are going to remember a famous thing that is called post-activation performance enhancement. Mm -hmm. A muscle is influenced by its contractile history. Let's take three of the words out and just call it activation that's what activation is dumbasses who say there's no such thing as activation have just publicly announced they don't understand physiology <laughs> post-activation performance enhancement four words let's get rid of it, just call it activation because that's what it is and that is that a muscle is influenced by its contractile history now when you walk into the gym you don't immediately just warm up you prepare yourself for the warm-up through various mechanisms the big three is one of the mechanisms that is the lowest load with the least cost to your spine that you begin to apply. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not what you do just for your squat. It's the process you do before you actually start the rest of the work that starts to load. It's sort of what you do before you start your mobility work. Now, the idea there is, of course, that what you're doing with activation work, the big three, let us go back to the science behind why we choose them. Mm -hmm. Professor, what is there? There's three planes of human movement, isn't there? Forward, backward, side to side, and rotation. Mm -hmm. Only three directions human move. Forward, backwards, only the three planes of motion are forward, backward, side to side, and rotation. Yes. Now, if, if you want to jump straight upwards, all you're doing is you're applying forward, backward force through the ankle, the knee, and the hip with such manner that you break the gravitational force, then you leave the ground. It's forward-backward application of right. force. Now, if there's three planes of motion, perhaps we should do three exercises to prepare us to be able to put them together. Well, the McGill curl up, or perhaps even a front plank, welcome to your forward-backward control of your abdominals. Mm -hmm. Let's do a side plank. Ah, that's side-to-side -side control. Mm -hmm. Ah, let's do a bird dog. Ah, anti-rotation. You've just addressed the three planes of motion. There's a hell of a lot of science behind why those three are chosen. Now, what do you do next? Well, after you've done your activation, you've prepared yourself to actually do those three planes. Do you want to load them? So we can do some suitcase walks for frontal plane, side-to-side mm -hmm. -side work. We can do some renegade rows. Well, what you're starting to do now is you're starting to prepare to do the workout. Right. You've just taken your base three or your big three, 
and you're just starting to apply force to them. And then you get to do your warm up. Then you got to do your major lifts. The whole point is you do your big three for life. If you want to, if you want to squat more than Brian Carroll at 1306, trust me, the first thing you do when you walk into the gym is you're going to do the big three. And then you're going to load the big three directions, the three planes of motion to increase your stability. With me, I just added the base five. I included glutes, that's all. I put the lock clam at the start, which mm -hmm. creates glute max contraction without asking the glute max to extend the hip. I've just made it to abduction and external rotation. Right. But the glute max provides those, and then you'll put the three in between, and then I extend the hip with glute max. There's your base five. And what do we do after that? Well, we might do a little bit more butt work. So I might put a band around your knees and make you do some um, squats for the band. So you're teaching now the post-activation performance enhancement of knees out under load. You've got a band. The whole thing's science. We just progress. We take the three planes of motion and I include the glutes. And then we just work our way up to whatever our performance max has to be. Lane Sumner, when I looked at um, working with he, after, uh, Professor McGill had worked with him. Yeah, big three every day. Now, he's one of the greatest athletes I've ever seen. Yeah, mm -hmm. big three done every day. You don't take a day off. It's a it's a hallmark of the best athletes that I've ever seen who last the longest is they do the boring shit without question, no negotiation. They do it. They have the capacity to do the boring shit. I call it brushing your teeth. It's like nobody yeah. likes brushing your teeth. It's not fancy, <laughs> but you need to do it or else your teeth will fall out of your head. So <laughs> you might you might as well brush your teeth. I have myself like my own movement hygiene that I do every day. And I think everyone should develop their own type, you know, movement hygiene is just a fantastic way to, you know, characterize it because it's not going to be the same for everybody. Um, everybody has their own needs, but at the same time, it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be this extremely nuanced thing. You just explained scaling a stimulus. You, you explained stability under load in like three minutes, not using any three syllable words. That's pretty much how we understand it, isn't it? We break it down. I think it's a, a friend of mine made a post the other day, just great, a great dude. He was like, after going through all of the education that I've gone through, I returned to doing the stuff I did when I was 15. He's doing a dumbbell row. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? That's kind of the, the, the path that we take. We get extremely nuanced and we try all these advanced things. And then we realize, oh, all of these, these advanced things are just leading us back to the simplest answer. They are. That's the beauty of it. It's not complicated. Mm -hmm. It actually is very straightforward but for you to understand straightforward you need to just go a little bit deeper of course so the big three why do we do the big three because there's three planes of motion that was what's related to it <laughs> it was actually some someone asked me a good question the other day if you could uh, if you could only have two exercises that you should do for life what would they be and i said well the turkish get up would be one and the kettlebell swing would be the other now because when people get older, what's the biggest indicator of mortality? Getting above inability, the spot on. Yeah. So every person every day should know how to get off the ground and don't take for granted that you do. Because I can tell you what, 
how many super heavyweights have you ever seen in bench press? Um, and you watch the videos on on the various social media. You watch them bench. Notice how the video stops about the point that the bar goes back on the rack because they can't get off the bench in a straight pattern. They're getting people to help them off the bench. That's not healthy. All right. You should be able to demonstrate that you can lie on your back and you can get up off the ground efficiently and effectively. Well, for life, you can do that with a load. Well, there's your get up. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the most effective ma- method for longevity of your spine to learn? It's going to be a hip hinge movement rather than a spine dominant movement. Mm-hmm. So kettlebell swing supplies that. Well, there's two motions. If you wanted to give somebody health for life, be given those two movements. And all I do is I'd add one third thing to do, and that's called a walking program because that produces spinal compression, cyclic compression. Now you've got three exercises and things to do for life, and I bet you'll be healthy as hell and not get injured very much. I love it. I'm a big kettlebell fan. I, I like If I could choose one implement to train with for the rest of my life, it would be kettlebells. Yeah, so versatile, aren't they? So wonderful to use. Mm-hmm. And they can teach us how to move effectively. So that's one of the things about the spinal movement that a lot of people question is – when you have a huge capacity for your collagen to be effectively producing recoil, you're pretty young. I've never seen a truly older master's lifter who can use passive recoil to lift a weight because that shit's all got tough and solid and they're having to use muscle to move with it. You spoke about this earlier, about efficiency. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a study that says that rounding your spine and lifting with a rounded lumbar spine is more efficient than with a neutral spine. Uh, Of course it is. It's using passive elastic structures. It's metabolically more efficient, but it's absolute shit if you want to load up because you need active structures then to take over the role, and that becomes metabolically more expensive. Of course. So. Yeah. I mean, even from the standpoint of biomechanics, right? If I want to move a load, I want to get that load as close to my center of mass as possible. Well, if I round my back, that shortens the lever arm of my spine. Mm. So if you're talking sure efficiency, does. yeah, for sure. But practically speaking probably in for a bad time and what's the efficiency point about it's a point that you and i are hunter gatherers 4.4 million years to get to where you and i are sitting here today mm-hmm. as hunter gatherers homo sapiens about four hundred thousand years old well one of the mechanisms of evolution for survival was calorific efficiency how to decrease calorie expenditure through your day so that you can survive so our ancestors have basically led us to a point where we move using passive elasticity where possible. We turn off the muscles because they're expensive. Mm -hmm. Well, when you pick up your car keys off the ground, you'll probably do it in a passive elastic way. And trust me, your muscles turn off then. There is the demonstration of your lumbar musculature turns off when you do that because it's called myoelectric silence. Body uses the passive structures to get you there and then it recalls you out of there and the muscle come back in. Well, pick up more than your car keys. You have to start increasing the active structures to be able to be injury-free at that point. 
So you're looking at not going to end range flexion and using passive structures to recoil with. You're actually having to put your spine in a more neutral position rather than a flexed position. And you're having to use muscle to hold that, which prevents you from getting injured. It's all contextual. As you said, the word is context. Context mm-hmm. to load. Everything is load context, isn't it? Absolutely. Load and load and, and velocity. Because yep. when you're talking about, especially with the application to sport, loads are usually like talking about a baseball or a football or, you know, or, you know, while sprinting is the weight of the body. Mm-hmm. But when you add in velocity, that's when things get a bit spicy. Yeah. You won't throw a baseball without passive elastic recoil. No, no. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about uh, your practice. So you have your business, United Health Education. Um, yep. And that is where, you know, primarily online education forum. Are you, is it like courses? Is it ongoing content being uploaded? What's the, tell me a little bit about it. Yes, there's United Health Education is the synergy of three people. That's um, Danny Antonellis, who's an osteopath and a pro bikini athlete. There's Julie, my wife, who's got a master's in nursing and nearly 30 years of work in group fitness education. Mm-hmm. And there's myself. Now, we produce a a membership product for that's essentially made to help trainers be effective. It's for those groups of people who want to be able to instruct clients, give programs. Here's an exercise library. We're your resource and we do a um, a Facebook Live each week where we answer some questions and bring things forwards. And then the next part of that is I run a thing called the Lumbar Spine Leadership Course. Now, that's actually beginning in about eight weeks again, and that's a membership application where I supply a full book on all the work behind the course. That's about 220 pages. There's lectures that are videoed to explain the book and an exercise library that shows you the things that we do. And then from there, every month, I do more lectures person Zoom-wise, mm-hmm. and we answer questions, and I go through the research papers that demonstrate why we do what we do, Q&A work, and case study presentation. The idea is to save someone 30 years of going through all that themselves, and I'll show you how to get to a point where you pretty much picked up nearly everything I can show you in a year. From there, we just keep educating. There's the nuances. But over a year, we can basically go through 12 good solid units that will create you as a professional who should be able to get close to 99% of the problems right. Love it. That that everyone else fails with. I love it. And your practice right now is primarily consultations and online. uh... Mostly, yeah, it's online. So I do the uh, people send me messages and send me emails and I can schedule them in when I can fit them in. And we do the video consult here. It was very easy for you, me, people who have a coach's eye Mm -hmm. to understand movement pattern disorders. So if I'm dealing with an athlete, send me the video of your problem. I can probably understand where your problem occurs. But if you're not an athlete and you've just got a back problem that's been persisting, I'll ask you to do three movements and analyze those plus your history form. Of course. And I'll we'll 
I will know your directional preferences. I'll see your weaknesses and apply the exercises that you need. Yeah, online is so easy to solve a problem. And that was a beauty when I worked with JP Price. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a guy who had what he was told was a career ending um, back pain. Yep. And then he sent me the video of how he was stepping out of the rack. And all I saw immediately was there's your problem extending your back because your hip's not extending. And mm-hmm. we just increased his hip extension. And suddenly, guess what? My back doesn't hurt anymore. I remember speaking to JP. To say that. I remember speaking to JP quite a bit. Um, he was done mentally. He was done emotionally. He was done, mm. and uh, it seems like he's got a new lease on life. <laughs> yes, he's such an enthusiastic person for the community. It's always good to see what he's doing. Super nice dude. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's very easy to analyze video, and you don't need to have a person in your rooms to do it. Beautiful. Um, all right, I got a couple quick quick hit questions. Go for it, man. Do your thing. First question: Is your hair real? It's as real as it gets, man. <laughs> of course. <laughs> How many times have you watched the Predator? Mm, too many to count. It's probably beyond my ability to count. It's in my head every single day. Don't worry. Even driving down the freeway on my on my car. I got the predator in my head. Love it. Do you crack yep. the egg on the corner of the pan or on a flat surface? Uh, I got to the point where I could be a Japanese teppanyaki. I can do it without even eating a surface. Oh, that's impressive. Oh, man. I used to eat three dozen eggs a day for five years. When you start to do that, you know how to crack Three egg. dozen eggs. Hey, I took up. I took the advice of a Mister Universe who used to work at our gym. I said, "Man, how do I get as big as you?" you know, I'm a 16 year old. He goes, "Eat two to three dozen eggs a day and drink a gallon of milk." All right, that's what I did. You must <laughs> have went from a, bed. You must have been a pleasure to be around. Uh, I always thought I was, but <laughs> brutal. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you can listen to one album with no skips, what would it be? uh pink floyd dark side of the moon i can see that and lastly or actually two you more need to be st- you need to be stoned though yeah that's true <laughs> you have five dinner guests dead or alive who are they mm. carl sagan all right so he's a um great presenter on the universe and various things died now so he's dead he's gone Mm-hmm. Um, Jacob Jacob Bronowski, who is a mathematician, a Polish fellow, and his grasp of the English language is magnificent. He went from being a mathematician to being almost an anthropologist. What a great mind, those two oh, in the wow. same room together. I would definitely have Professor Stuart McGill to sit there because he would work well with those two people who are there. Um it's not unlikely I probably had Lemmy from Motorhead there because I think Lemmy was a very, very, very smart man as well. There's no doubt about the genius of Lemmy and Hunter S. Thompson. That is quite the table. Yeah, we got the crew there, and you just know they're all people who come together with real purpose, real originality, real insights. Love that. Um, now the last question is who would you like to see on this podcast? The caveat being you have to help me get them on the podcast. 
you had you well, you've had MDLP on yet? I have, yeah. Matt Wedding. All right. I'll we get you, Matt, for sure. Matt's what a what a great investigator into the the science of weight training and the Soviet understanding. Yeah, he will contribute much because his yeah. um he's he's gone as deep as it gets upon the foundation stones of the conjugate method. And you look at him and you go, yeah, and you're still uninjured, man. What did you do? And how do you do he's it? Put it into practice too. I mean hundreds and hundreds of thousand pound squats and 500 pound benches it's crazy it's um it is phenomenal so yeah get we'll get met okay so where can people find you dr Locke? best place at this point would be at united health education to go there online or they can catch me obviously on instagram at andrew underscore lock underscore strength Great. Those two places will find me. You can contact me there, send me messages. And when I don't, if I don't, because there is often a tsunami of messages, if I haven't answered, Mm -hmm. send it again. You are permitted to send me a message every single day unless I reply, okay, until that point. Because the whole point is it can get busy and there's nothing wrong with reminding people. Don't expect us to remember when we're really, really busy that, oh, 200 messages ago fuck i missed something yeah, yeah. You. you you have the you have the right and go for it fantastic and with with luck i'll reply within five minutes if i don't just remind me <laughs> all right dr Locke. thank you so much i'll link your stuff in the show notes uh, i really appreciate time appreciate your time and uh, everyone please like share subscribe and ring the bell for notifications of new podcasts thank you Super Paul, fantastic to catch up, man. Enjoy it so much. I've actually seen the dawn break in Australia for the very first time in a long time, having to do this conversation. What time is it there? Oh, it's well now. It's just hit eight o'clock. But okay. I got up at I got up at six thirty, which I think is quite uncivilized. Really? Yeah. I would have taken you for a morning guy. I like the evenings. Those predator always works best at night. That's a great place to end it. Thank you. (laughs) See you next, Paul.